The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Daryl Rebeck, the president of Lexagene. Lexagene trades in the U.S. as LXXGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as LXG. Lexagene is a biotechnology company developing a fully automated pathogen detection platform for use at the site of sample collection, which offers unprecedented ease of use and breadth of pathogen detection. Lexagene's technology aims to transform the way organizations prevent and diagnose disease in multi-billion dollar markets, such as food safety, veterinary diagnostics, water quality monitoring, aquaculture pathogen surveillance, and more. Daryl, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of Lexagene. So Lexagene is a public biotech company that's developing an open access system which can test up to 22 pathogens at a time, such as Listeria and E. coli. It's designed to be open access, meaning you can keep your own sample, process your own sample, and test your own sample without the use of a skilled technician. So if you can imagine a vet clinic or a food processing plant that's trying to test and look for pathogens, can you imagine that person be able to collect their own sample, input it into machine, hit a button, and in an hour get the results they're looking for? No one else offers that open access capabilities that we have. And you're saying it can happen in as little as an hour. That is pretty much unheard of in an environment where you go into a clinic or a doctor's office and you don't get results necessarily for several days. Yeah, and one of the big issues right now with testing is because of the process when you have to ship it to a lab, when you have to wait for a licensed technician to use it, it adds extra time and extra cost. So if you can imagine a lettuce manufacturer who has to put that lettuce in a controlled environment for two days, it would be much more efficient and costly and plus with product freshness if it can be done in that same process in an hour versus having to ship it away and get it done somewhere else. Would that potentially just change the way that food and agriculture are processed? It would absolutely be an enormous change for those industries. These are industries that are in huge need of innovation to help them process and get results quicker. For so many reasons in terms of food is obvious. If you look at pets and some companion animals, if you can imagine getting the results in an hour versus three days, like a friend of mine whose pets passed away waiting for the results, this is a huge difference. Lexagene essentially is revolutionary technology which can change the face of how food is even processed for market, not to mention applications for pet care or health care as a whole. Yes, this is a huge benefit to industries that are in desperate need of change. If you can imagine a lettuce manufacturer, for example, being able to test his own sample on site and ship it to the end user, what a massive difference that would make to the quality and also save that person time and cost. Furthermore, if you imagine a vet clinic, someone brings a dog in and that dog at the end of the day has to wait two or three days until it's diagnosed. And a lot of times what happens is those dogs are misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed and you have a dog that gets more ill or even passes away 
away. This can all be done on site without a licensed technician in an hour. How does the Lexagene device assist with early detection of new airborne pathogens or diseases? So our device is very user-friendly that way, for lack of a better term. It's something because it's open access and because everything is done within the machine, it's very adaptable to a new pathogen that arrives. Most common practices right now, you have to find that pathogen and you have to test for it and you have to actually set up the filter in a way that tests for that pathogen. We can do this all internally. So if you can imagine our device on an Air Force base in the Middle East, for example, and a new pathogen or a new illness or pandemic becomes an issue, we are uh, capable to have that machine adapt to that very quickly and have testing done very, very efficiently. And something with pandemic outbreaks, the thing that is most important is quarantine for that prevention of that spreading. Are you in talks with the U.S. Department of Defense, Daryl, or can you say with regard to this device? We have had contact with them and we've discussed the capabilities of what our machine can do. We've also had contact and discussions with border control and how that can help them with all the food coming in from outside the country, which now has to be tested. Let's talk about the device itself and the inventor, who's also the CEO of the company, Dr. Jack Regan. So this device came out of Livermore Labs, which is funded by the Department of Homeland Security for Biothreat Attacks. This device particularly was developed to look for anthrax in the air. If you remember after 9-11, there was a slew of anthrax attacks that were prevalent at the time. So this device essentially sat in the corner of Grand Central Station, Boston Central, the Olympics, for example, and processed huge amounts of air looking for anthrax. Should they have found anthrax, they would have shut down whatever that was or wherever that was in terms of transportation and or the Olympics, for example, without any further testing. So the origins of this device comes from a place that's very, very very successful in things that come out of there. Livermore Labs has had many companies been out of there and they've been very, very successful and we feel that we can be the next success story. These stories have been acquired for upwards of hundreds of millions to recently one of our competitors has been bought for $4 billion in November of last year. So is that pretty much your strategy, bring the device to market or just about bring it to market and then Lexagene becomes a takeout candidate? Yeah, one of the things that I like when I'm looking at public companies as an investor as well is the fact that there's an exit plan. And one of our exit plans is to sell the company. The big companies that do diagnostic testing become more innovative by acquiring products. They also do their own development, but most of it is acquiring. Jack's first company that he left Livermore for was called Quantalife, which was bought for $162 million 18 months after Jack joined the company. So this is a very strong plan in diagnostic testing in the markets, and it's something where you develop your product, you take it into beta testing, and it's something where these companies start to look at what you're doing, and it drastically helps what they're doing in their process, but it also helps us because you now have access to their network of salespeople, their support staff. And if you can imagine selling a device in Denmark, how are you going to service that as a small company? So one of the things I love about this company and why I got more involved a while back is the fact that we do have an exit plan and it's not years away. We're talking potentially 18 months away and something that really, really sits with investors so they know I'm not in this for nine or 10 years because I'm waiting for approvals. I'm looking at something that's two, three years away from having an exit plan and a capitalization event. That's really, really important. One of the things about many of the biotech companies as investment choices is waiting on the phase one, phase two, and phase three studies. As an investor, you can wait forever for these processes to end. It's almost not worth it to invest. You have quite a different situation here, potentially. 
Much agreed. And uh, we will be closing phase two very shortly. But what's different about our device is we are going after the low-hanging fruit, for lack of a better word, the veterinarian diagnostic market, the food safety market, the aquaculture market, the water testing market. These markets combine their $18 billion industries. So these are huge industries that don't require FDA approval to set your plans in motion. That said, the FDA fortuitously has mandated food safety testing now. So in a very, very beneficial environment for us, the FDA is now requiring that all food producers test their food. And this is huge for us based on the fact that it's an industry that's already $5 billion in revenues. If you can imagine where that's going to go from here, because every single person now has to test your food. You have to keep good records because the FDA can show up unannounced. You have to have a formula in place so that sicknesses and illnesses that have not decreased in the last 10 years don't continue to happen. So why haven't we heard about Lexagene and this device yet on traditional media outlets? So we have just started to tell our story to the world. This is something where what do good investors do better than most? They find stories that aren't known by everyone yet. We are just starting to tell our story. We are just starting the marketing of our company. For example, we are filming this week in Boston for Fox Business News who are doing a feature on us. We were hand-selected. We did not pay for this. This is something that is going to be shown to 85 million people worldwide. And there's also going to be 100 spots and 100 cities of our choice for ads on CNN, Travel Network, Discovery Channel, that's going to drastically increase our profile. So starting today with you, Ellis, we are now starting to get the word out about our amazing opportunity that we have in front of us. Let's talk about Lexagene's share structure. In our company, we're always focused on the share structure. We make sure at all times that we're thinking about the share structure so that we can maximize shareholder value. We only have 50 million shares outstanding right now, and we've only taken the amount of money that we need at all times because we'd like to preserve that structure. It's something that we're very proud of. We've invited in investors that are very close to us and something that we're very, very strong with. How are you capitalized going forward for product development? So we are capitalized till the beginning of next year to get us into commercialization. Come the end of this year, beginning of next year, we'll be doing a large race to take us into commercialization. Commercialization will be by the end of next year. What's important in these types of stories is six months before or six months after commercialization is when most takeovers happen. So we're very excited to get to that point and potentially be looking at takeover acquisition offers at that point. We know that Dr. Regan brings the technical expertise to the company. What is your background, if you don't mind me asking? So I was a senior VP and investment advisor at Canada's largest independent brokerage firm for 15 years. One of the things I learned about is it's very hard to determine what companies are worthy of investment. So I came up with a four-pillar strategy. The four pillars that I feel complete any investment picture are the people, the share structure, the ability to raise money, and the product. In this case, we have the people who have built and sold companies before. The share structure we alluded to before. The ability to raise money is clear. We can raise money, and with our experience, that's never been an issue. The product, as we have discussed before as well, is something that is in huge demand by massive industries. Also, my experience in the markets is close to 20 years now, and one of my recent successes has been Caden Resources, which was acquired by Agnico in 2014 for $204 million. Post Caden Resources, we then started Orin Resources, which is now the largest exploration company on the planet in terms of drilling, which is now a $250 million market cap. Daryl, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Okay, thank you so much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Daryl Rebeck, the president of Lexagene, trading as LXG on the TSX Venture Exchange and as LXXGF in the U.S. 
Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm a shareholder of Lexagene. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. It's good to be here. Please give our listeners an overview of the company. Pure Energy Minerals is a lithium explorer and developer, and we are advancing one of the largest lithium brine projects in North America. We have at Clayton Valley, Nevada, the largest contiguous land package in the lithium brine business in North America, the only inferred lithium brine resource in North America, and now the first preliminary economic assessment on a lithium brine project in North America. Well, that news is very, very recent, and it's exciting, and it bodes well for the future of pure energy minerals. You have a positive preliminary economic assessment and a plan for your pilot plant at the Clayton Valley Project. Let's talk about that. At Clayton Valley, Nevada, today we issued our preliminary economic assessment press release, and that means that we've advanced that project through the early stages of geological work. We've defined an inferred resource there now, and we've done a lot of engineering and pilot plant testing to show the potential economics of that future lithium brine operation. So we're very excited to get the news out. It's been a long time in coming. These projects never go as fast as you would like. They're never as easy as you would like. But the fruits of getting out there and being able to discuss it are truly positive for the company, and and I'll be doing a lot of that in the coming weeks. How much closer are we to offtake down the road? And I'm referring specifically to your agreement with Tesla. The lithium space is kind of unique, Ellis. Here we are hoping to produce this commodity, exploring for this commodity that is not geologically rare per se. There's lots of lithium resources out there that can support future lithium batteries and electric vehicles. But those operations that are in production or close to production or able to produce product to spec for modern battery factories are indeed rare. And Pure Energy Minerals did set itself apart a couple of years ago by signing a conditional supply agreement with Tesla. Tesla was actively involved, even aggressive looking at their supply chain, and we got that conditional supply agreement done before we had advanced that inferred resource to the level of confidence that we now have with a PEA. Now, having put this PEA out, and in 45 days, of course, we'll be filing the complete report that backs that up, we can now discuss the economic parameters of a future operation. We can talk about its scale of production. We can talk about its estimated operating expenses to produce that lithium. And, of course, we can talk to potential off-takers and seek relationships with those companies to be their suppliers. And this is really when the work gets serious, Ellis, and when we can really conceive of what a mine might look like and who our customers 
might really be. It's an exciting time and something I've been looking forward to for some time. You've assembled a fantastic management team, haven't you? It has been a big year for Pure Energy Minerals so far. We've transitioned our team quite a bit. We added Walter Weinig, our new vice president of projects and permitting back in April. And we've just recently announced the addition of Mr. Paul Zink to the management team as our chief financial officer. Paul has an incredible resume, 15 years with a JP Morgan in New York and London, covering mining and energy stocks, so both on the analyst and banking side. He's truly a finance-trained senior manager. He's worked in the rare earth element business. He's worked in gold, of course, and he was a co-founder of International Royalty Corporation, a very successful royalty startup as well. So he has this diverse experience, Ellis, that we really need. If I look at the cogs that are the team at Pure Energy, we have technical, very well covered. We have project management, very well covered with Walter, who has managed complex projects and is a professional project manager. And now we've added that finance piece of the puzzle, if you will, that helps us evaluate our various business proposals, the offtake agreements that may be looming in our near future. And of course, the way we will go about financing, advancing the project to Clayton Valley. We have an immediate need to have a hard look at the best way to build a pilot plant where we can start making lithium for our potential new clients. And financing that and making the arrangements with our strategic partners to get that done, that's just the kind of thing that Paul will be uh, very able to help me with in his position. CFO. You mentioned lithium exists in many places in the world. It's not always economic, especially in Nevada, to produce it, but you've handled that. These projects, as I've said to you in our several months we've been talking, they advance systematically, Allison, and that's how I view the work. We get out there, there's a great bit of early work that's done to ascertain where the lithium brine might be, and those first holes are drilled and those samples are taken, but that takes a long time to progress through the steps, and as we take more data, we drill more, we've conducted more pumping tests, and now we've submitted all that data to a bunch of independent engineers' analysis of whether this thing can make a mine, and the outcome from that has been positive. And it indicates it's time to take another big step forward towards a pilot plant. So we do believe that that differentiates this project from a lot of the earlier stage lithium occurrences. And that's how we're going to continue to focus. But it's systematic work. There really aren't a lot of shortcuts. And many times if you look at the sector in which we work, junior miners, there's a lot of longing for fast moving and for shortcuts. But really you have to do a lot of the work because this is the foundation we've laid with this PEA. And it will help us define and better scope the project. The actual mine we hope to build won't be defined, of course, until a feasibility study, but that's what you get to work on right away now that you've outlined those economic parameters and those engineering parameters, and it sort of gives us the building blocks we need to take it to the next level. So I'll keep doing the work with my team just as we have done. We'll try to methodically advance this through the next milestones, but you do get the feeling things move a little faster now when you can envision the revenue and the margins that can be very attractive in this type of operation. And some of those numbers are on that recent release, correct? The press release we issued summarizing the preliminary economic assessment has those tables that we've come to look for in these documents, the key economic indicators of the project, the capital expenditures, the estimated operating expenditures, and some of those numbers are very attractive, Ellis. The thing about lithium is the price is at a very nice point in the cycle now. The new supply has not really come on board as everyone had hoped, so prices are high. And we've used a independent marketing study from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence to look out 
out at the 20-year mine life. And we've picked their base case for lithium pricing, the sort of middle-of-the-road trajectory they think lithium hydroxide pricing will follow. We've adopted that in this study. And we see very healthy margins. The sort of steady-state EBITDA, or earnings before income tax, that we expect the project to produce is around $100 million a year. That's a sizable operation. It's a healthy margin. And it's because we're proposing to use a technology here that's never been used before. And the early indications in this study are that it can make lithium at a very low estimated operating expense. So if our costs are attractive for making lithium hydroxide with this new technology, it really does sort of endorse our approach to go after this environmentally sustainable, fairly low-cost way to produce lithium. There was an article in mid-June in The Economist discussing another area where you have a project, the Lithium Triangle. Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. You have North and South America covered. Lithium occurs in these settings around the world that we kind of already know. And the lithium triangle in South America is certainly the most prolific producer of lithium. And obviously the commercial production coming from Chile and Argentina and Bolivia having some fascinating geological occurrences, but no commercial production. It is important to be in the world's great lithium districts. And we have launched our new terracotta project there. In fact, I've just gotten word that there's been a bit of a break in the winter weather and we're just kicking off geophysical program down there. So we look at productive districts, Ellis. That's been my strategy through several companies, really. We look for where are the productive districts and right there in Clayton Valley, Nevada, we have a dominant land position surrounding North America's only producer. So we're right there in a productive district. And even though the deposits in Nevada have been smaller and lower grade, their chemistry is very favorable and that has historically led to the long-lived mine we have there now and what will hopefully be our future success. Whereas in the lithium triangle, the deposits tend to be bigger and often higher grade. Sometimes they're more remote and sometimes the chemistry is more complex. So there we targeted the Pasito Solar with its excellent infrastructure, road, rail, gas pipeline right there to the project. And while it's an early stage project, we're very excited about its potential. So like you said, we definitely have a horse in each race in North and South America. It just so happens we're a little farther ahead in Nevada and and hence the news we put out today. And you have a significant partner as well in Nevada, Lithium X. Just a few weeks ago, we announced that we were combining the properties in Clayton Valley of Pure Energy Minerals and Lithium X Energy. And we purchased with shares and a great relationship with Lithium X their Nevada properties to consolidate the now much larger Clayton Valley project at over 26,000 acres in Clayton Valley. So we welcomed Bassam Mubarak, Lithium X's CFO, onto our board. And it's really just the synergy we were hoping for. We can now put our heads together in Nevada with no fear of conflict of interest. And work on this project for the betterment of all the shareholders and the upside potential there. And by doing that deal with shares and a very sort of business savvy team over at Lithium X, we did it in a way that the shares are locked up and we're really cooperating for the first two years of this relationship. There's support between the two companies, a pooling agreement. So it's really just the synergy we look for. And and it's one of the reasons we do business with people we've known for a long time in this business. It's really paid off well now that we've really consolidated Clayton Valley into the one big project that we have. And of course, our neighbors Albemarle's Silver Peak Mine. Something worth mentioning here, perhaps first and foremost, is the fact that Pure Energy Minerals is really a clean tech company. Pure Energy. Pure and simple. 
Ellis, it's so interesting. Here we are. I'm a longtime mining guy, and yet here at Pure Energy, we're kind of a clean tech or even a green energy story for some folks. I get lots of queries about the new technology we're proposing to use, and can we make lithium in a more green fashion? And I think the resounding answer to that question is yes. And with this study we've put out at Clayton Valley, we're giving the investors and the reader a sense of what's new and different about this technology. And first and foremost, there'd be no evaporation ponds associated with the project we're envisioning at Clayton Valley. That means no big visual scarring of the landscape with those ponds. And most importantly, though, what it means is when we take the brine out of the ground and we recover the lithium from it in this plant, we are going to put that brine back in the ground where it came from. Obviously, once we've filtered it and made sure there's no contaminants in there, but we use an, a solvent to get the lithium out of the brine. Then we put the brine back in the basin where it belongs and thereby preserving the groundwater balance between the salty water that we're seeking and any fresh water aquifers that may be around that communities or other folks for agriculture may need. So really conserving water is one of the number one things we achieve. And the other important thing, as we reported in the news release, is that on a yield basis, sort of a per liter of, of water that comes out of the ground, this technology looks as though it can achieve over 90% recovery of that lithium. Whereas the old technology we see in Clayton Valley and in South America rarely exceeds 50% recovery. As far as I'm concerned, that's not even a mining operation. We can do better than that, and we're seeking to do that. And the pilot plant work we've reported on, the mini pilot plan that went into this PEA, yielded recoveries of about 91%, and we see that in the design numbers. We're going to conserve that water. We're going to be a much better steward of our lithium resources. We're going to get higher recoveries out of it. And, of course, without those big evaporation ponds, we don't have the risks of killing birds or even the salty dust clouds that blow up and down some of these desert valleys and some of these lithium operations. So we get a lot of interest from investors and from corporate groups who look at this technology and they say, this pilot plant we're going to build in Nevada will be the first of its kind. And we've already had expressions of support from companies that want to be part of that. And they believe that Nevada, right off the paved highway with power lines right nearby and trained workforces as we have in Nevada, are the place to trial and develop this first-of-a-kind technology for the application to lithium. We'll learn from all those other applications in copper and uranium of this similar technology, but it's not been done in lithium before, and our PEA certainly highlights its potential to be a pretty exciting new technology. Well, Patrick, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for the update. I look forward to more in the future. Thank you very much, Ellis. We're very excited, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of news for us to talk about in the coming weeks. Be sure to follow all the latest Pure Energy news, including what we discussed today by going to their website, pureenergyminerals.com. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Mart Report on iTunes. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Donald Baxter, the president and CEO of Alabama Graphite Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG and in the U.S. as CSPGF. With an advanced flake graphite project in the U.S. state of Alabama, Alabama Graphite intends on being a reliable, long-term supplier of specialty, high-purity graphite products. Don, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Tell us why graphite matters. Uh, graphite matters because it is the key component in a lithium-ion battery. The anode of a lithium-ion battery is graphite. There's actually 10 times more graphite in a lithium-ion battery than there is lithium. It's a situation where China controls 100% of the natural battery-ready graphite. So as you build battery plants in the West, you are 100% dependent 
on one of the key materials on China. When I was in China recently, or shall I say Hong Kong, there was a lot of interest in graphite. Why is that? You see it in China. China is taking the whole situation very seriously. Where the West is missing the investment opportunity or the aspect of how important graphite is, China is not. China is gearing up. I too was just recently in China and China is gearing up in a big way to produce battery ready graphite. They already control the market, but they are also looking to control it further and quite frankly, consume more themselves. For every battery plant built in the West, there's got to be 10 built in China. Speaking of consumption, what are the choices for coated spherical graphite in the US? Alabama graphite. We are the only project in the contiguous United States. And that speaks volumes because not only can we meet certain criteria for made in USA, we're also sourced in USA. So everything happens here, where as other potential sources supply out of Africa, Brazil, even Canada, they can ultimately say they're made in the USA if they repackage or do some minor processing in the United States, but none of them can say sourced. And that's very key, we found, for some of our potential clients we're working with right now who are Department of Defense contractors who are mandated to source American. Which is interesting. You've had some discussions with various members of the U.S. Senate and the Congress, haven't you? Oh, indeed, yes. And, and not too long ago, I sat with Senator Shelby in Alabama. He was on a tour of Coosa County, where we are situated. He was very interested in the situation. He got it. He understood that this was not just about jobs for Alabama. This was about national security. He's actually on the Senate Appropriations Committee for Defense, and he said he would take the matter with the Defense Secretary. If there's any geopolitical issues overseas, well, let's say Russia or China, it more or less traps us as an industrialized nation, a superpower, with regard to sourcing the defense industry or other aspects of what we do as a culture. Oh, oh, indeed. And the Department of Homeland Security recognizes that, and it is graphite is on the list of supply critical materials. It's also on the list in, in the EU. We're finding our potential clients, they get it. So they're very pleased to find out there is a source of graphite coming on stream that is in the United States. I know there was quite a bit of interest in the graphite graphene space back in 2011, 2012. I see that sort of happening again, more or less, don't you? Indeed, it is starting. Maybe a little slower start than it was then, but the logical follow through, and back then people were chasing rare earths and then lithium. The next logical step was graphite. And we're seeing that now. I think the fact that it is such a supply critical material, the investment community is starting to realize this. And I think recently our government has put an importance once again on rare earth metals and minerals. Oh, absolutely. And graphite follows as well. So again, it's the same situation. If you look at the rare earth situation that, that existed in China, you translate that to graphite. Exactly the same. Supply critical material controlled by China. And that's the situation where we are looking to mitigate, where we are the only ones that can claim to be sourced in the United States. Not only that, but let's compare Alabama graphite to other graphite companies that may be in the space, yours is more ready for market. In fact, it's ready for market than any of the other choices that I'm aware of. Indeed. If you look at all the other business models out there, be it a preliminary economic assessment or a feasibility study, they're based on producing and selling primary graphite, which is large, medium, and fine flake. And those who understand the space, that's the key buzzwords back in 2012. That's no longer the case. We recognize that and built our business model on the product that everybody wants, the highest margin potential. And, and quite frankly, the highest demand. So we believe that our business model is the only one that currently works in the graphite space. It is based on the supply critical material, which is graphite. Shouldn't the lithium ion battery, in fact, be called a nickel graphite battery? Actually, Mr. Musk has said that. He referred to lithium as the salt on the salad, and these batteries should really be called a nickel graphite battery. So I'd say yes, indeed. So what does the automotive industry look like for you as far as a possible offtake or possible client of Alabama graphite down the road? We are dealing with 
with a few car manufacturers and quite frankly to my knowledge every single car company out there now has an EV or at least a HEV and I think we're seeing that momentum growing and I think a lot of these companies now are realizing that there is a growing issue in sourcing the materials for this onset of this massive demand growing for lithium-ion batteries. Now let's talk about the share structure of the company and the potential advantage of getting involved now if that's your choice. As any CEO would say I think we are tremendously undervalued now. We're sitting in Canadian dollars at 14 cents. You see some of our peers which are sitting at 10 times that and I think the market is just starting to realize what we're doing and how advanced we really are technically and I think our valuation will catch up to that relatively soon. I remember some of these lithium and cobalt stocks when they were at 15, 20 cents not too long ago, maybe a year, a year and a half ago. Oh, indeed. And we watch that. We compare ourselves and our technical capabilities in comparison to some of these companies and we realize there's a lot more substance in Alabama graphite than there is in some of these lithium companies. So we've proven what we can do. We're making more and more of the material and we're growing our list of companies we are giving supplies to, both DOD contractors and non-DOD. And we're starting to get more recognized. As we put out our information, news releases on some of the advances we've done, people are calling us up wanting more information on that. The best example was one of our most recent news releases was where we've taken our coated spherical graphite. We've added a sprinkling of silicon and that has taken the performance of that graphite beyond its theoretical limits. So that makes the phone ring and there are some typical household names that your audience would recognize. Well, unfortunately, we're not allowed to speak them loudly, but pretty soon, I think when the market realizes that we are dealing with some of these high-level companies that I think that, as you say, that multiple on our share price is just around the corner. Now, I've probably seen you in three or four different locations during this past year. We're in Los Angeles right now, my hometown. Why are you on the road so much? Why is it so important that you visit? The key thing is getting the story out. We're recognizing that we are undervalued. We're recognizing that the story needs to be told. We're trying to find the venues that will understand it. Out here in California, I lost count of how many Teslas I've seen. And again, I think here it's understood. I think California has always been ahead of the curve on all environmental aspects. And I think the electric vehicle and beyond that with the electric stationary storage applications, which will be far eclipse the transportation aspect of it. You see it here more. You like the Tesla Powerwall. Absolutely. And you see what Tesla is doing. I mean, Tesla is not a car company. Most people think they are, but it's it's Tesla Energy. The Gigafactory being built in Nevada is not just for vehicles, it's for the Powerwall and, and also other industrial applications. And you'll see with Musk taking over Solar City as part of the master plan to get off fossil fuels. A key aspect of that strategy and, and for others as well is that currently most people don't realize is that a Tesla Model 3 has about 76 plus kilograms of petroleum coke in the batteries. Panasonic uses synthetic graphite. It is definitely counterintuitive to what Mr. Musk is doing to get off fossil fuels. You can't have a precursor of fossil fuel manufacturing in your green automobile. So I think switching to natural is a key thing that they're looking at doing. They can get a product for say half the price, but significant performance improvements in natural coated spherical graphite that we can produce. So with all the resource companies in the space right now wanting our audience's potential investment dollars, why should we take a look at Alabama Graphite? I think looking at what we're doing and what we've produced so far, if you look at our news flow and the technical things that we've done, there's nobody that can match what we've done. Just what we've proven we can do and from actual technical experience. I'm an engineer first and foremost. Our task, first of all, was to build the technical leg underneath this company and then now get out and, and start telling the investment community just what we're about and hence why we're doing a few roadshows and whatnot in order to get that word out and get people to realize just what we're doing. Well, Donna's 
always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. My pleasure. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Donald Baxter, the president and CEO of Alabama Graphite Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG and of the U.S. as CSPGF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Eric Owens is the president and CEO of Alexandria Minerals Corporation. Alexandria Minerals Corporation trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and of the U.S. as ALXDF. Alexandria is an active, growth-oriented Canadian gold exploration and development company with strategic properties located in the world-class mining districts of Val d'Or, Quebec, Red Lake, Ontario, and Snow Lake, Flin Flon, Manitoba. Alexandria's focus is on its flagship property, the large Cadillac Brake property package in Val d'Or, which hosts important near-surface gold resources along the prolific gold-producing Cadillac Brake, all of which have significant growth potential. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be here. We're excited about your 30,000-meter drill program in progress at the Uranata Zone 4. Well, it's really great because it's sort of a follow-up to our last drill program, which ended in April, and for actually for which we're still waiting for some assays. The last 9,100 meter program really kind of verified our conceptual thoughts about Oronata. The idea that we have these act high-grade veins there, and it was really the first serious program that we had to attack these things and see what they're like. So that gave us confirmation of all of this. Even though we're still waiting for some assays, we were able to expand the gold deposit, so to speak, from its original size of about 300 meters to 700 meters length, all in the upper 250 uh, meters with the past drilling just on the basis of the assays. If the assays come back favorable for the next remaining holes from that program, we should be able even to expand that further, but we'll wait for the assays before we go there. The new drilling is a follow-up to that. Because we have high-grade veins, we have a nugget effect, we have to do some fairly detailed drilling. So in part, this new 30,000-meter program is going to be able to fill in some of the gaps that we still have there, which are quite many of them at this stage. So there's a lot of drilling to be doing to give us confidence about connecting the dots in the subsurface, as well as further step-out drilling. Basically, we're testing a two-kilometer stretch of the target zone, which in our case is the well-known Cadillac break, a major regional fault zone that hosts gold deposits over its length. And then in the upper 250 meters over that two-kilometer width with this 30,000-meter program. And our goal with that is fairly simple. We want to come up with a new resource estimate by the end of the year, a new, more robust resource estimate, and we expect to increase the size of the resources, which were last done in 2009, increase the size considerably. We're expecting a minimum doubling of the gold resources there by the end of the year, and we hope if things go well with this drilling, it'll be quite a bit more than that. So you don't wait necessarily for all the assay results to come in from the 35 holes. You receive some positive news and act on that. Was that the plan all along? Well, that's been sort of the plan all along. We've got places to drill without having to wait for the results in one given area. So we have a main core area, which I call the open pit area, because there's a small open pit on the site there. And that's where the main historical, or I would say current resources lie. And these are what we've expanded already on, but we need fill-in drilling there. So we're keeping busy doing logical, useful work 
that needs to get done for the future resource estimate. While we're still waiting over on the west, far away basically, uh, what 400 meters away so to speak, for the results to come in. So we're not even worrying about that. We know we're going to get some decent results. We just don't know what they're going to look like at this stage because we don't have the assays and we, we can see the quartz veins existing over there so we know we're still in the system over there. We just got to wait for the assays to know how to better plan our drilling over there. The Valdor area has always been very prolific and discoveries like yours, potential discoveries, just verify that in one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Yes, yes, correct. It's a very active area. They've been mining gold for the better part of 100 years, almost 100 years now in the area. Uh, about 25 million ounces of gold or so have been mined in the immediate Valdor area over that period of time. And then the broader belt, which continues west, uh, you can magnify that by three or four times over that same time period. So it's a prolific area. Everybody, when we first got started here uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of people said, that's all the gold has been mined out. And sure enough, since that time, some 26 million new ounces have been discovered. So it's still a good place to be. If you receive the results that you expect toward the end of the year, what's your plan going forward from that point? Our plan is to, of course, get that first stage, in our mind, first stage uh, resource estimate out. There's still a lot of growth potential beyond that. We're focused on a little two-kilometer stretch along the Cadillac Break. There's four kilometers west of that till the end of our property, that would be sort of a next follow-up target zone is to test along that four-kilometer stretch because there's indications from historical drill holes that there's been some high-grade gold hits down there over the past 50 or 70 years by the sporadic exploration that has occurred there. And, of course, we can also do the same going east. And, of course, we own 20 kilometers in that direction to the east of there. So there's a lot of potential upside. And, again, we're keeping this shallow. We're not aiming to drill below about 250 or 300 meters. And, and the, the idea is to try and see what we can get near the surface first. And, of course, we know that the gold deposits, ore deposits in general up in this part of the world, tend to be elongate in the vertical dimension. So if you find something at surface, then it behooves you to start going deeper if you need to. So, so far we're avoiding that, but that's even a longer term down the road sort of option. Now, you've been in the business for quite some time, Eric, and as you said 10 to 15 years ago, you became involved with this area and we're very excited. Here it is 2017, and are you more excited than ever about the gold sector, the precious metal sector in general? And how would you tie Alexandria into that as a potential investment opportunity? I actually am. I'm very excited about how things are going and how things are going in general in the industry right now, as well as with Alexandria. I think we're on the right path at a proper time in the general cycle that we've all been through many times in the mining industry. It just seems a fairly natural cyclical industry. So far, we seem to be coming out of a bottom. We have a, a fair bit of upside potential within the broader industry. And so our timing is pretty good to be starting to get aggressive in our efforts here. We're still fairly early in that the upward swing in the cycle. The money is still a little bit sticky out there, but people are starting to pay a lot more attention than they were uh, even in the recent past. So I, I'm really uh, pretty excited about the way things are going right now. Well, Eric, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Great, Alice, and thank you. It's good hearing from you again. I've been chatting with Eric Owens of Alexandria Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and the U.S. as ALXDF. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Westsells, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. 
Western Copper and Gold is solely focused on developing the world-class casino project located in the politically stable Yukon Territory. Currently in the permitting phase, Casino is poised to be the premier copper gold mine in Canada and the flagship mine for the Yukon. Western Copper and Gold, through its wholly owned subsidiary, Casino Mining Corporation, is committed to developing the casino mine in a manner that provides economic opportunity for all involved, while maintaining the highest levels of social and environmental practices. Paul, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. If you don't mind, give us a quick overview of the company. Western Copper and Gold are developing the casino project up in the Yukon. We're looking at a large copper gold project, 18 million ounces of gold, 10 billion pounds of copper, advanced project. This is a project that's got a full feasibility study. We're working its way through permitting. And not only are we in the Yukon, but you know our neighbors to the right are Gold Corp, and the neighbors to the left are uh, Agnico Eagle and Kinross. So it's, a, it's an exciting jurisdiction, and it's an exciting place to be. You have a recent news release outlining a Cisco acquiring the Orion mine finance royalty portfolio. How does that involve Western Copper and Gold specifically? There's a royalty on the project, a 2.75% NSR royalty. We sold a portion of that to Orion Mine Finance in 2012. That's really the money that we've used to finance our feasibility study and the permitting work over the past few years. And they've been, you know, a great partner. But, you know, we're pretty excited to be now working with Cisco. And, you know, Cisco's got a great track record in terms of helping move projects forward and being there. And, you know, a royalty is, you know, no one gets paid in, until the mine's into production. So, it, you know, it's a different sort of partnership, but it's a partnership and, you know, we look forward to moving the project forward with them. Well, clearly, a Cisco and Ryan believe in you. Yeah, we were happy to see that when the news release came out from Cisco and and Orion, you know, it was a package of 74 royalties, and they highlighted the 20 top, and then we were in the 20 top royalties there. So it was a big transaction, you know, $1.1 billion is, is what that transaction was for the package of royalties, so we were happy to be featured in that package. We've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating again. Goldman Sachs has listed Western Copper and Gold as their number one copper pick in the world. Keeping this in mind, what would you say to those potential investors considering resource stocks in this market going into the summer? I'm a pretty big believer in copper, and because if you look at what's happening in the world, it's just getting more electrified. There was a article that came out this morning, I was flipping through, it sort of looked at the fact that the copper demand for electric cars is going to increase tenfold. You look at what's happening in China, they're electrifying more and more of that. Interestingly, in China, they actually have a federal mandate there in China to have you know up to 10% of the new cars be electric, I think, in the next 10 years. So it's a big commodity. I mean, in, in terms of materials commodity, I mean, it's sort of second only to iron ore in terms of tons that need to be mined and sold. So it's a big commodity. What we're seeing right now is we're just coming out of an oversupply situation. If you go back to 2010, a number of mines were built and too much supply came online. We're now on the back end of that. And, and that's what you saw really at, in October of last year when you saw the copper price go from $2 to 250 It was the realization that the supply is not going to meet the demand. And really to get the next block of copper online and for the next sort of wave of mines to come online, we need $3, if not 350 copper. I think we're going to see that in the next year. And if you go back and look at what happened in October of last year, copper price went from $2 to 250 very quickly. I went, you know, moved that quickly in, in sort of about three weeks. So I expect the same thing to happen. I mean, right now, copper's 
nicely sitting at about between 250 and 260 but I think when it moves to three dollars it's going to do so quickly and I think that's going to happen you know sometime in the next six months well copper is a universal metal used basically for anything electronic it's also used in the construction of buildings as a ground wire not to mention wiring in general there should be a great deal of new construction going on in the coming years given that and also the ramping up of electric vehicles globally speculate if you will how high can the price of copper go well if you look at the last cycle copper went up to about four dollars and twenty cents so you would expect this cycle for it to sort of hit that and then go higher so i think that six dollar copper is a reasonable sort of target and you know you look at that opportunity i mean copper now is sitting at 250 and companies such as western is highly levered to that copper price copper at six dollars when copper hits that and this is why you want to buy junior mining names is that they rise faster than the underlying commodity price rises so I mean, when copper went from $2 to 250 our share price doubled. So as copper makes its way up to $6, you can imagine where our share price is going to be. So while copper has been a less speculative play than gold or silver, that could change, couldn't it? No, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it's been fairly unloved for the past few years. But when you saw it break out from 2 to 250 you saw a lot of new investment. That investment has sort of been quiet over the last little while. So I think the opportunity to get in is right now. What's happening with the casino project in the Yukon? We're continuing to move the project, you know, really to being shovel ready. And we think we're about three years away from the project being shovel ready. So we're working on the permitting, we're doing a little bit of the engineering work. We feel pretty confident that we're three years away from really the thing being shovel ready. And, and that's exciting because moving back, you know, particularly into the copper space, there's not a lot of good projects, economic at today's prices, that are in jurisdictions such as the Yukon. I know that you and members of your team are traveling around the world essentially right now, spreading the word about Western copper and gold. How important is potential shareholder awareness when telling a story such as yours? It's absolutely key. We've been doing a fair chunk of marketing of the company, and really it's, it's on the idea that this is a great copper story, but it's also a great gold story. If you look at the project with 18 million ounces of gold, 9 million ounces of that gold is in reserve. These are rare animals. There's not a lot of significant size gold deposits out there. And when you're looking at the M&A space and you're looking at the major gold companies, for a major gold company to sort of go inquire and then get a large amount of gold in, in reserve is, is very, very challenging. And there's not a lot of good projects in good jurisdictions. So it's a real asset for us. That's one of the things that's really been resonating with our shareholders that really look on the gold side of things and then on the copper side of things. You know, this is where it's a great opportunity to get into our name, I think, right now. You've started to see the first movement of copper. You know it's going to move fairly soon, and yet you can still sort of get into the copper names at a good price. Let's not forget that you're surrounded by some of the biggest majors in the business. The last year has been just an exciting time in the Yukon. And you know, Alice, I think you were up there even before some of this stuff started to happen. But I mean, there's been eight different transactions with major companies making significant investment in the Yukon. And importantly, it's not just the Yukon, it's it's right next to us. I mean, our claims touch Gold Corp to the West, and they touch 20% Ecnico, 20% Kinross vehicle to the east. And we're getting surrounded by all these guys, and it's an exciting time, and we'll see where things go, but it's going to be an exciting summer. The writing may indeed be on the wall. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. I look forward to more updates from you when they happen. Thanks for joining us on the program. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Paul Westsells, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold. 
trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon Welcome back to the program. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me again, Ellis. If you don't mind, we have new listeners all the time. Just give us a brief overview of the company. We're a Canadian company with assets in China, run by Canadians, with a head office in Vancouver. We have six mines in the Ying District in the Henan Province and one mine in the Guangdong Province. It's a silver, lead, zinc mine, and our primary metal that we sell is silver. Now, you're generating revenue. It's significant. You're offering a dividend to your shareholders. Let's talk about your earnings. Yeah, we had a great year this year. We did 100 and. $83 million in revenue, a gross profits of $82 million, net income of 43 and cash flow from operations was $80 million. And our net income increased by 580%. I mean, it's a, it's a very large number. And we have $95 million, $97 million in the bank. We have a dividend. As you said, we're dividending out $0.02 cents US a year. We have no receivables and we have no long-term debt. Part of the reason we got to where we are this year, silver price helped and so did lead and zinc. However, dilution control for us was critical. We're we're a narrow vein mining company. We have 224 veins in the Ying District. The Ying District accounts for about 85 to 90% of our operations and our revenue and profits. And we have 224 veins on that property. Most of them are narrow vein, and so dilution control is critical. And we were able to manage our processing of ore to extract the maximum amount of that silver, lead, and zinc. Now, we've discussed this in previous broadcasts, but you have consistent grade. It's 300 grams per ton, approximately, and you're set to go for quite a long time no matter what the sector does. Yeah, we are grade guys and that's an important thing. High grade's important. We just put out a resource, I think it was in February, and if you look at the mining schedule, AMC put out the report, with the resource that we have, which we have another 20 years left of mine life, what's important if you look at the mining schedule is over the next seven to eight years, we have access to 300 grams per ton material. So if you look at our numbers that we just put out, if you look at the fact that we can do 300 grams per ton for the next seven or eight years, if the silver price maintained itself anywhere between 15 and $17 an ounce, we should be able to put out these kind of numbers as long as we manage our dilution control and our operating costs. And we are the lowest cost, highest margin silver producer. Not many people know that, but that's the truth. We should, over the next seven to eight years, be able to generate, I would say, between 30 and $50 million in profits if the silver price stayed at between 15 to 17 People ask me, always ask me, what's going to happen to the company? if the price of silver goes up. Well, everybody knows if the price of silver goes up, we all do well. And I never know what that silver price is. I do know that over the last 10 to 15 years, the silver price fluctuates and goes down. So if even if it went down to $10 an ounce at 300 grams per ton, Silver Corp would still be a profitable company. I can't tell you exactly how much we would make, but we are a company because of grade that can make money when the silver price goes backwards. And for me, that's a metric when you're investing in mining companies. When the price goes back on any metal, does the company have the grade profile to be able to be profitable or at least sustain itself? Does grade really determine in some capacity the cost of production? 
production, which in your case is either a, a dollar per ounce or, or a negative cost. Yeah, the higher the grade, the more leeway you have for your expenses. And the lower the grade, the less leeway you have. The actual formula that I was taught when I worked at Mag Silver by Peter McGaw and Dan McGinnis was your net smelter return should equal two times your operating costs to give you an internal rate of return of at least 17%. If your net smelter return isn't two times your operating cost to give you an IRR of a minimum of 17, I, I like to use 20, then you're going to be fighting a losing battle. That metric fits us perfectly. Now, when it comes to your share price, potentially there is room for quite a bit of upside in the coming months and years, depending on the market, of course, and simply uh, exposing your company to new investors. Yes, we just relisted on the New York Stock Exchange. We're hoping that will help on the liquidity side and, and a bit some price drive. The market's a little soft right now in all cases, but in looking at our recent results, our price to earning ratio is about 15. And we're putting out, I'll add that to our um, our presentation shortly. What we're seeing right now is that we're at the low end in terms of valuations on the PE. We're at 15 and our competitors are between 18 and 24 on the price to earnings ratio. So we have a lot of room to grow on the price side for Silver Corp. And of course, it takes a strong management team to get there. Yep. No, we've got strong management. This company's been around for 11 years, 12 years, and it's gone through some of its paces, as most companies has its up and downs. But right now, the management team is a strong team. We're looking at acquisitions. We've got cash in the bank. We want to grow organically, but we can grow inorganically as well by looking for creative acquisitions, which we are on the hunt for right now. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silver Corp Metals, trading in the U.S as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.